0: Welcome to the Farming on Purpose podcast, a podcast for farmers and ranchers ready to shift for a stronger future. Today's challenges in agriculture are new, but the grit and determination required to be successful are not. On the Farming on Purpose podcast, you'll hear how producers of all sizes and practices are moving mountains for things they believe in, all in the name of an industry that keeps growing and innovating for a stronger food system and stronger farm families. I'm your host, Lexi Wright, and I'm excited to discuss where producers are finding success, challenging the status quo, striving for better, and keeping our heritage alive, all while producing the food we depend on. Welcome back to farming on purpose. I am so excited to have a fellow podcaster on today that I've listened to for a long time. Matt with the off farm income podcast is here with me today. And I have lots of questions for you, Matt. Matt's located in Idaho. Um, So Matt, why don't you tell us a little bit about what your farming journey has looked like and what your podcast journey has looked like. Love to know more about that.
1: All right. Well, hey, thank you so much for having me on. I'm always flattered. Oh my gosh. How how long is your podcast normally? How long does it go?
0: Uh, you know, we just go however long we feel like. 45 minutes, an hour, 3 hours. I got
1: yeah, it. Now, we'll, <laughs> we'll turn this into an epic. It'll be like yes. <laughs> watching roots except uh except listening. Well, I don't know. I'm really dating myself. Pulling out words. Uh I grew up. Oh my gosh, I sound like uh, Chris Farley or something. Uh, so I grew up in a very very small town in the San Joaquin Valley of California. Uh, so kind of in the the middle of the Central Valley. There's a county, Stanislaus County. I grew up in the northern tip of that in a tiny little farming town called Valley Home. And uh, so back then, uh, there was a little town's just a little triangle with like 30 or 40 houses. That's it. One store, one school, K through eight, and when I grew up there, there was some orchards. Uh, I think there was a couple almond orchards and a couple walnut orchards. But by and large, it was rice where I grew up. And uh, then if it, and then you got further to the east, you got in the foothills, and there were some dairies, and uh, then beef, and and that was primarily what was going on there. Now today, that's all changed because of almonds, and so it's just almost 100 percent almonds down there now. Uh, but back then, that's what it was like. And so I grew up in that environment. Um, my family did not farm. Uh, my gr- Well, my grandfather on my mom's side in Fresno County uh, still was farming, uh, raising Thompson seedless grapes. So that was something that our family had done for about 100 years. Still, a few of them are doing it in Fresno County. But where I was at in Stanislaus County, on that side of the family, my dad's side of the family, no agricultural involvement. Uh, but I grew up around it. Everybody around me was involved in ag in one You know, one way, shape, or form. So my neighbor farmed on the side. Uh, There were people that there was a nursery out there. There were a lot of guys in town that worked at the nursery. Uh, We had a friend that uh, they trained dogs for a living. Uh, They trained duck dogs labs and then they leased out all the ground that they trained on to a cattle rancher i mean it was just it was pervasive it was always there during harvest you know i got to go right on combines and stuff like that during rice harvest and and all that so it was it was in the milieu for me and it was all around me and then we had one store in town with uh the, uh, the legend is and i think it's true there were only two liquor licenses of this type issued in the entire state of california where they were a retailer, but they could allow people to consume beer and wine on premise. And so in the back of the store, they had a beer garden. In the summer, uh, all the guys after work would show up there, and they would sit underneath this lean-to in the very back of the store when it was hot. And in the winter, uh, back where this big old wooden cooler was, where they kept all the the beer, uh, that stayed warm in that room because of the the condenser, and so all the guys would come in after work, and it, it would be dark by five. You know, this time of year, uh, well, I don't know when you're airing this, but in December it would be dark by five, and they'd all be gathered in there. And so, as a as a kid, and my go- my godfather was the owner of the store, and my dad was a regular visitor to the beer garden. So, as a kid, I would be in there with my dad, and then later, when I turned about eleven or twelve, I got a job two nights a week stocking the shelves and facing everything up in the store when they were closing every night and so I was always in and out of the beer garden storage room into that cooler getting beer to put out in the in the shelves in the store so there was constant talk of farming in there and uh, that just it just if I, maybe it was just osmosis. I don't know, but it, it just penetrated me, and so I—it's just I was constantly in this bubble of farming, even though I wasn't actively involved in it. And just as a little tangent, I can still tell you what beer every one of those guys drank <laughs> back in the uh, 1980s. I can remember that. But anyway, uh, my folks split up; they got divorced, and my dad moved into the city into Modesto, which is the county, Stanislaus County, and my mom stayed in Valley Home long enough for me to graduate eighth grade out there with all my friends. My eighth grade class was 13 kids. That's including me. And, uh, then my dad did not want me to go to high school in Oakdale, which is where Valley home kids went to high school. So he moved me to Modesto I went to high school in Modesto. And then my mom ended up remarrying selling the house and valley home moving to a town in the southern part of the county called waterford and my stepdad and his father they had a small farm that had been sold off piece by piece over the years uh, out in hickman and they still raised cattle and had cattle out there and so then i got to i got the chance to work with and around cattle and and start feeding animals at night and stuff like that on a very limited basis and that really grabbed me that was something that I really liked, I like I like animals, and I like being a steward of animals, and I like having pragmatic purposes for having lots of animals. And so that really grabbed me, and so that led me to major in animal science in college at Modesto Junior College after I graduated high school, and then on to Montana State after that for a degree in animal science. During that time, I worked in a, uh, I worked on a number of ranches. I lived on a ranch in Belgrade, Montana. And the worst conditions you could, well, I shouldn't say the worst conditions you could describe, it pretty bad conditions. And uh, I was so eager to ranch and be a cowboy, I was willing to put up with anything. It was the worst deal, deal I've ever negotiated in my life. And uh, then I worked in the row crop industry as well. I did two internships for back then, what was Zeneca Ag Products. And I sold Ag Chemicals for six months in the Treasure Valley of Idaho, which ironically, that's where I live now and have a farm now. And then for three months in Western Montana, I did that the following summer. I worked for back then, what was Western Farm Service, when, after I graduated, and uh, it, which is now Agrium. And I, I was just uh, grunt labor, uh, hauling fertilizer tanks, cleaning fertilizer tanks. Uh, augering out holes to put moisture probes in. This was back in the Central Valley of California because by the time I graduated college, I could not find my place in ag. I didn't know where I wanted to go in agriculture. I wasn't going to inherit a farm. You know, I didn't have anything like that. I just knew I wanted to eventually raise cattle. And the way it had been modeled for me was my stepdad, which was like 10 acres of good pasture, work your full-time job. And then on the weekends and on the evenings, feed cows and do the work on the farm so that's what I thought I would do so it was like well what am I gonna do for a living that's gonna enable me to at one point buy this 10 acres and and raise some cows and uh, I was interested in law enforcement I didn't know where my where I should land in AG I got a full-time job offer from Zeneca but I turned it down I just didn't want to be a a wholesale sales rep and uh, I ended up going back to California becoming a police officer actually and so I left AG and I was a police officer for 15 years And the final final two years of my law enforcement career, uh, my wife and I had purchased the farm that that I'm on this morning. So I spent two years of overlap, but then I had moved on from law enforcement right there at the end. So yes, long story.
0: I can only imagine the conversations that you overheard in that beer garden and how much you not only learned... About agriculture, but I just learned about like human nature and <laughs> people in that time. <laughs>
1: yeah, I'll tell you what. You want to talk all day. I'll clear my schedule. I got a million stories. I have no idea if your podcast is rated G or if it's rated R, but I've got a lot of stories, yes, oh, for sure.
0: gosh. oh gosh. Yeah, if we get time, we'll have to circle back and you can pick your favorite or one of your favorites. because um, that sounds very entertaining.
1: I've um, got a I've got a Christmas one. So, okay. yeah, if you want that.
0: That would be perfect, yes. I'm so glad you could join us today. You can support the mission of the Farming on Purpose podcast and be part of the tribe dedicated to building ag legacies at farmingonpurpose.com slash shop. You'll find apparel, office supplies, stickers, planners, and more, all inspired by the people living out ag legacies every day. Um, I think that... It's really interesting to hear your journey because it's very clear that you basically chased down with a stick every opportunity that you could find that led you down the agriculture path, um, which is what a lot of us have to do if we didn't be weren't raised on a farm to try to get involved and try to get that experience. What was it that was pushing you to keep finding those different experiences as you were kind of in that in-between stage?
1: Well, you know, I'm a really pragmatic person, and so I feel like like I don't accomplish this. I don't even know how close I come to accomplishing this, but I don't want any wasted effort. Now, that's impossible to achieve, but there are people out there, like my relatives who farm down in Fresno County, that's the, the really German side of my family, uh, they do a lot better at me at being efficient uh, with, with zero wasted effort. I, I waste a lot of effort, but I, I, you know, when I, when I visualize myself, I see no wasted effort. And so I got that interest. I mean, there was a common, there was a combination of things going on. I graduated high school in 1991. Now uh, I'm, I'm just going to be unbelievably transparent with you here. So I grew up in this rural community, which I loved and I never wanted to leave. And I was forced to leave uh, initially by my dad saying no you can't go to high school oakdale you got to move in here with me and then my mom sold the place and moved and so there was nowhere no chance of me going back other than visiting friends so i ended up going to high school in the city and probably midway through my junior year of high school when i had finally overcome this culture shock by the way of I can't even tell you what first day of high school was like for me coming from Valley home to Modesto. I, it was crazy. Uh, I'd finally overcome this culture shock. I'd made some friends. I was making some headway in, in developing a social group and all of a sudden my background of living in Valley home, this little town in the same County that nobody in my high school had ever heard of became such a focus. Of, I got it like helped me be popular mm. because what was going on in 1990, Garth Brooks, Clint Black, country music was exploding. And all of a sudden, all these city kids that I had been going to school with, they're all now listening to country music and they're discovering the stuff I'd been listening to my whole life. Now they're discovering Waylon and Willie and, and things like that. Now, how does that factor into my farming journey? Well, I think it's a factor because... It started to be like, I I started to stand out. There was nobody else at my high school like me with my background or who could talk about the things like the beer garden and stuff like that, or who knew anything about farming other than we had an FFA chapter, but I didn't even know about it back then, which is unfortunate for me. So I carried that, I don't know. I carried that new momentum of embracing my previous life into college. I was interested in cattle. Uh, from working around my stepdad and my step grandfather, I loved rural people. That's what, that's where my comfort zone was. That's that's how I'd grown up. I I like being blue collar. I liked being outside, and so it came. I graduated high school, and it's like, well, what do I do now? And this is probably a product of the late 80s and parents that were born in the in the 1940s and and growing up blue collar and rural like I did but my parents were like there is no question about it you're going to college however I only did one college tour that was of a community college up in uh, near Sonora California I uh, never took the ACT I never took the SAT I can remember a Friday night I was calling people like crazy saying, let's go out, let's do something. And everyone's like, no, I'm studying, I'm studying and I'm studying. And I'm like, finally, like on the fifth person, I'm like, it's Friday night. Why are you studying? (laughs) And they said, the SAT is tomorrow. And I, I can quote myself. I literally said this, what is the SAT? I had no, I did not have parents that were like, you need to take the place. So I never took any of those placement exams. So the next fall came around after after high school graduation and it's like, no question about it, you're going to college. So I enrolled at Modesto Junior College. And what are you gonna study? I don't know, no one had ever talked to me about, I had no idea. And so I picked animal science. And going into animal science, it I got to learn about cattle. I got to wear boots to school. I got to be around ag kids. I was embracing the whole whole popularity of the lifestyle I'd grown up with at that point in time. I mean, all these things were coming together. And then pretty soon I got far enough down the road in majoring in animal science that, again, I don't want any wasted effort. So I'm getting this degree and I don't want to waste this degree. So I'm going to work in this industry. I'm going to find my place in this industry. And so that started out with me thinking I was going to be a vet like many animal science students. And uh, I did really well at Modesto Junior College for three semesters. And then I transferred to Montana State University, moved out of, for the first time in my life, out of my parents' house, into the dorms, and immediately went on academic probation. And I repeated that for three two semesters. And then on the third, they said, hey, if you do this again, uh, we're going to force you to take a little uh, sabbatical from college and think about this. And so that's when I got that internship uh, with at products and said, I'm going to become a Montana State resident, I'm going to cut way back on my classes, I'm going to work. And that kind of turned things around for me. Um, but that, the, you know, as I progressed from thinking I was going to be a veterinarian and realized I wasn't smart enough to do that, I thought, well, I'll take the second option of an animal science degree and I'll learn about nutrition. At Modesto Junior College, I'd done a tour of a, uh, a grain elevator or a, like a, a feed production facility where they were rolling corn and stuff like that. And I thought, I love that. I love the smell of it. I thought it was really cool. But then I started trying to calculate rations. I couldn't do that. I was like, oh, I can't do that. So then I went down to option number three, which was farm and ranch management and ultimately squeaked out a degree in farm and ranch management and the animal science or the, that option in the animal science degree. And just along that way, just always trying to figure out how in the world am I going to make money with this?
0: I heard you spit, tell a story about, um, listening to the cows eating and kind of a revelation moment that you had at that time. Um, I, I feel like that moment that you've talked about before is so inspiring to hear about, because just listening to your story, I can only imagine the like that most a lot of young people experience at that time in their life where you're just seeking that identity and you're seeking that what's next. And you're like, what comes now? Why can't I quite put my finger on it or other people make this look simple? Why is it hard for me? Um, Kind of thing. Do you want to share that story? I'd love to hear it again. (laughs)
1: Well, you know, I I don't know if I could even tell you when the first time I realized this was. It may have been in Montana, uh, that ranch I worked on and lived on. I all I did is I fed I fed cattle for them every night. Um, that's a whole another tangent I could go down. I won't go down unless you want me to. But I fed cows for them every night. Uh, drove I forget what series of John Deere it was, but you know I would I'd use that spear on the back on the three point. And, uh, I'd spear a round bale, cut the twine off and then use the PTO and spin it off and and fed their, their cow herd every night for them. And I'd get done. And sometimes there were bald eagles out there with me and, and stuff like that. And this was right on the base of the Bridger mountains to the North of Belgrade. And, uh, and I would just shut down that tractor and I'd just sit there and I could, I could listen to him eat. So I know I did it then, but when the first time was, I don't know, but Feeding hay is one thing, but really when you turn cows or now we have goats as well, turn cows, goats, probably any ruminant into good, fresh pasture. Man, there's something about that. I love Uh, the, you know, you've got generally like when we're rotating pasture, when, when they're, when they're ready to rotate, they're pretty noisy. They're pretty whiny, whether it's the cows or the goats, because they know on the other side of the fence, there's something that's delicious and they're bored with what they've been eating. And so they're a little bit noisy. And then you open that gate or however you move them and they go in there and they hit that really good pasture. And all of a sudden it just becomes silent. It's just absolute silence, except for, you know, those molars grinding that, grinding that grass and, uh, and digesting that. And... I think that this would probably be universally true. Like the way they say, if you hold a cat on your chest and it purrs, it lowers your heart rate. I think sitting there watching these animals, loving this fresh pasture and hearing them chew, I think it it just, it. there's some connection there. I don't know what it is, but I think it's probably like that thing they say about cats. There's something about that noise and the the pastoral scene and all of that at lower heart rate, you feel good. You feel content. I don't know. I, so I could just sit and I could, I could listen and watch that all day long. I, I just sit there and lean on the fence and watch. And I love it.
0: Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. That It'd be interesting to see the, the science on that, but I think a lot of us know exactly what you're talking about and it's, it is, it's just such a calming feeling. So yeah, I appreciate I you, you describe it very well. So Thank oh, you thank for sharing you. it. <laughs> yeah. It's a hard, it's a hard feeling to describe to people who haven't experienced it, I feel like, mm-hmm. but anybody who has knows exactly what you mean.
1: It's yeah, a, I think that's right.
0: Very yeah. relaxing thing. Mm-hmm. Um, So as you were kind of searching for this next thing of figuring out where your place in ag was, you had seen it as a big part of your identity through high school and into college. And then like when you had, when you had decided to do the police force. What was that like knowing that you were going to have to wait a while before you would be able to kind of take that step back into ag and and do the part-time farming thing again?
1: Well, you know, it is a, it's a, that is such an interesting topic, at least to me, uh, is a very interesting topic because I think it impacts how, how deep I'm willing. So I think the fact that I had to wait and I had to go out and live, basically like 98% of the population does right outside of ag for all that time waiting till we could finally buy our place. Um, And I didn't have to, I could have worked at ag, but like I said, I couldn't find my place there. I think that impacts the decisions I make today when it comes to farming. And I think I could have done it a different way as well. I could have been so hyper-focused, super hyper-focused to where I did nothing but work. I could have picked up a second job. I could have taken all the overtime shifts possible. I could have stayed uh, with the first police department I worked with, which is the the best paid department I've ever worked for and stayed just for the money and saved, saved, saved. And I probably could have bought that first farm and half the time it took me uh, to, to get it done. Uh, I should say took us because then a couple years later I got married, but uh, I probably could have done that, but I didn't. Hyper focused like that. I I set a long term goal. I set it when I was about 19 years old and I steadily worked towards that goal. And I don't know. I don't think it was wisdom. It was probably just luck that I didn't go so hard that I burnt myself out on the on the idea, because that's the that's the flip side of the coin in people who want to farm is you got to be careful because it's so difficult to do and you got to work an off-the-farm job. It's very easy to burn yourself out and convince yourself that farming was the wrong dream. When it, it wasn't, it was the correct dream. It's just that the implementation is what's burning you out. And so that's that's part of where my show, that's part of where the emphasis on off farm income is, is in that concept right there. But anyway, during that time, I just went ahead and I lived... I'm going to say a normal life because 98% of the population lives this life. I lived a normal life. I mean, I saved money uh, that I got married. We saved money. We bought a house. We started building our life and, and trying to build a pathway towards doing what we do now. Um, but I mean, I went on vacations Uh, I was working in the Central Valley as a police officer. I was making good money. Uh, So we would go over to the coast. We'd go to baseball games in the Bay Area. We did did other vacations, went camping. I mean, I lived the life that a non-farmer lives. I could go off and go camping, go on vacation, go to a ball game, whatever, whenever I wanted without lining up somebody to take care of all the responsibilities I had back home. I mean, that's a piece of freedom that is tempting. You know, it's very tempting. And so I did that because we didn't buy our place until 2011. And I became a police officer in 1996. So uh, that is whatever the math is on that. Uh, what is that? 15 years or something like that of of living that life. Um, and we didn't have our daughter for eight years of our marriage. So for for eight years of that, we were dual income, no kids, if you've ever heard that term. And uh, and so we had disposable income and we we're going off and having fun and doing stuff like that. And so for me, uh, I I later got in a hurry. I later was I, I was remiss that I did not have the hyper focus and get it done faster. But ultimately, uh, probably in the, the last five years leading up to per us purchasing our farm, That was starting to really sink in on me and I was going what are you doing you're screwing off having too much fun you need to get back and get focused on this goal because remember I don't want any wasted effort just the way I roll and I like to accomplish my goals and so it had been 15 years since I set that goal or, or something like that. But I wasn't done with it. I just knew it was a long-term goal. So probably in the last five years, starting in about 2006, and ironically, that's when my daughter was born, uh, really started getting a lot more serious about we need to get this done. And we need to get it done before she starts school because we want her raised the way we were raised. We don't want her – because we were living in the city of Boise then, and she was going to go just by district lines to one of the snootiest – elementary schools in the whole city and I was like no 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 this has gone too far we need to get back out there and so that's when I really started getting hyper focused again but we had built Autumn and I had built uh the platform the foundation to be able to do this by that point in our life just because of the way we lived it
0: yeah it's interesting that um that your daughter was kind of a catalyst for you of like oh snap we are on a timeline here
1: yeah
0: Yeah, we had a very similar experience that when we had kids, it did, it felt like you were all of a sudden under a crunch to make things happen, because they're young for such a short period of time. And it feels like if you miss that experience, that that's in your early childhood, it's very hard to get that exposure elsewhere down the line from a parent's perspective. I mean, there's always other things you can do later. And things like that, if that's what the path you wanna go down as a person to get that ag experience. But from a parent's perspective, providing your child with those farm experiences and learning the F hard work ethic and things like that, it's hard mm-hmm. to develop later.
1: Yeah, I I would never say, I don't know, I'm not the type to ever go, job well done, you couldn't have done that any better in, in looking inwardly at myself. But in terms of my daughter's childhood, in the terms of the way she grew up from age five on, well, even the first five years of life, um, I'm very pleased with what we've done. I'm really, really happy now. Is she going to be a farmer? You know, I don't know. I don't... For some kids, they know their whole life. For other people, it sets in later. Some people, they go, nah, that's not what I want. Whatever. This was my dream, not hers. But I couldn't be more pleased with how she's been raised because... Um, Every day of her life, we've been able to set an example that I think has been positive in one way or another. Uh, We've done And by the way, I get on a soapbox about consumerism and materialism. And in particular, in the city, um, I I can really get on a soapbox about that stuff. And by the way, I'm a I'm nobody is nobody's without materialism. I'm I'm guilty of it, too. But when you get into the city, I feel like you see a bunch of messed up priorities. Um, I feel like you can get as much pleasure out of watching a cow turn down on a fresh pasture as anybody can out of any shopping experience at the mall or a theme park or whatever. whatever. And I just think now, I think to folks in the city who on the weekends are sitting around looking at each other going, what are we going to do? to entertain ourselves for these next two days we got off and it always involves spending money and always, you know, and so um, getting my daughter away from that, I was really, really happy with. She may never farm, but she grew up seeing a life that you can get many, many more intrinsic rewards from things that cost nothing. And to me, I think that'll stick with her her whole life. And I think that'll be really beneficial.
0: I've never thought about it. In that perspective before, um, but I'm really glad you brought that up. That gives me a lot to like ponder, because <laughs> it's like almost like are the folks who haven't been around agriculture? Is it just lack of exposure that they don't have the opportunity to see that rewarding experience? Um, or, or you know, are they are they looking for something to fill that void, and that is why those consumerism and spending habits exist? Mm. I don't know. That's an interesting thought process.
1: Well, I think there's a lot of void filling going on. Now, is that void created by not having a farm or not working around cattle? I don't know Probably about not that. Not for everybody. <laughs> not for everybody. But I do think there's a lot of void filling going on, and we're using money and cheap stuff from China to do it. And uh, and look again, uh, you can look around my studio here, and you can you can see evidence that I've bought stuff off of Amazon and done all that. I do it too, um, but. Uh, you know, nobody's ever complete. I'm trying, I'm always trying to simplify and get better at, at not doing that. Yeah, absolutely. By the way, my early episodes, I talk about this when we lived in the city and I was working in a, in a career cause I, the stage of life for me being a cop ended, but I was still doing it because of what we call the golden handcuffs, right? I had seniority, I had good pay, lots of vacation. I had a pension, Health benefits, all these things that keep you somewhere that you shouldn't be. Yeah, I was doing that, and I had three days off a week because I worked a four ten schedule, mm-hmm. plus tons of time off from comp time and and vacation and all of this. Hey, I was buying toys, and I was buying toys to self medicate myself because I was spending the bulk of my life doing something that I wasn't supposed to be doing any longer. Mm-hmm. And I mean, when I I when I say that, I mean you can you can say whatever you want. You can call it. You can call it an inner voice. You can call it the Holy Spirit, whatever you want to call it. But I knew that I was supposed to be doing something differently. And I wasn't, I was ignoring that. And I was pushing through from, for material stuff. And it was a self-fulfilling prophecy where I was buying now material stuff to soothe whatever that was on my weekends to kind of refresh myself so I could go back on Monday and start all over again doing something I wasn't supposed to do. But the more stuff I bought, the more money I needed to make to pay for the stuff, and the more it kept me in the place that was the wrong fit for me. So you've got to, a a person has to, once they realize they're in the wrong fit, they have got to be willing, and they have to have a partner who's willing to cast off a lot of this stuff that you have brought into your life and gotten used to That's been nothing more than self-medication because you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. That's that's the way I believe.
0: That's a huge step to take, and it takes a lot of courage to do that. And I think that probably is a wonderful gift to have given your daughter that experience that you can share with her of, you know, just being willing to be brave enough to pursue that next right step for yourself. So what did that look like when you, as you said, kind of let go of the golden handcuffs? What was that step like? And how did the podcast and the next steps with off-farm income play into that as well?
1: Well, when we when we purchased our farm, which when we first bought it, um, it was right at the bottom of the market after the housing crash of 08, So in the bottom here was 2011. So that's when we bought our place. It was 25 acres in a house. That was it. There were no fences, no irrigation, nothing. Just weeds, 25 acres and a house. And so we got out here, I started looking around and I was like, oh boy, I've had this goal for 20 years or whatever it was, but now I'm like second guessing myself. Like there is a lot of work to do here, and I'm still working full-time in town um so the first thing was we had had a travel trailer we lo- loved going camping and uh as we got older and had a little bit more disposable income and then when my wife got pregnant with hattie uh she was like i'm not camping in a tent with a baby and that was a reasonable statement and even though people do it as a reasonable statement so we bought a travel trailer well uh i needed something to pull that with so i bought a nice uh dodge with a uh cummins diesel straight up down i had a special order it because i wanted uh rubber floor mats but vinyl seats and uh or not vinyl seats cloth seats and i wanted roll up windows rather than uh power windows you know because i knew i was going to drive this truck forever so i i ordered a brand new pickup that was a big hit uh, before that, I was driving a 69 Ford three-quarter ton single cab two-wheel drive. That's what I drove. Uh, and so I sold that. We called it the Beast. Man, I wish I still had that truck, by the way. I love that truck. Nothing sounds like an old Ford truck when the uh, door closing on that. It's, it's such a distinct sound, and you don't get that in today's trucks. I really miss it. But anyway, anyway um, so we had had a travel trailer. We had upgraded travel trailers to a big one. Uh, during that time, I bought two four-wheelers. Uh, there was a guy, there's a, there's a microchip manufacturer here in the Treasure Valley in Boise called Micron, and they had a facility in Singapore. I think it was Singapore. And this guy was getting transferred to Singapore. So I bought his big travel trailer. I bought his racks that went over the back of the pickup to hold two four-wheelers, and I bought his two four-wheelers. So I had all of that stuff, all those toys, when we were still living in town. When we moved out to the farm, we almost immediately sold the travel trailer. I took one look around and went, we need the money and we ain't going anywhere in this travel trailer for quite a while. So we sold that thing, sold it right off. Uh, then pretty soon I started my first business. That was in 2012. So we bought the farm in August of 2011, May of 2012, I started my first business. I converted the four wheelers to business assets, uh, both legally on my taxes uh, as well as in principle and converted the pickup to a business asset. I bought a flatbed trailer to haul my equipment and then those racks that went over the bed of my pickup, they were valuable. So I sold those and used that revenue for the business and I shifted all those toys into business assets either as actual assets or uh, as cash that I could use to build the business and build a different life and get out of that off that hamster loop. <laughs> I don't know if I answered your question, but that's kind of how that started.
0: Yeah. I think that's really cool that you were able to do that. And I don't know if that was by design that you had thought about, you know, having those four wheelers and you know what that what they might be used for down the line no. Um, but I, no. <laughs> no I think that is something that a lot of folks are realizing that are jumping into beginning farming though that they can do is they can start to acquire some of those assets that might be multi-purpose down the road even if mm-hmm. they're not ready to use them for that right now but regardless it well worked out well for you that you had those um so awesome. What were some of the first things that you then started to buy as you guys jumped into the farm and you had these assets or cash that you wanted to invest in it?
1: Well, uh, fencing. And uh, so, uh, so my brother-in-law uh, is, a uh, well, he's not anymore. He's still with the same company, but he was a lineman for our utility company back then. So he was able to get me some power poles. If I say telephone poles, he'll come through this computer and strangle me. So <laughs> uh, he was able to give me some power poles that you know had been torn out, but they still could be multi-purpose. So I cut them up and and Autumn and I were like, okay, it's time to start building fence. Oh my goodness, we are in. You go down, you go down eight inches where we're at, and you hit lava rock, and you get through ten inches of lava rock, and then you hit hardpan and Kalichi, and We spent like a full day and a half putting in one post.
0: That sounds fun.
1: Yeah. And it's, that's not great on a marriage either. (laughs) And I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. My, I bought an auger for the, so there was a tractor on this place and we bought it uh, just a small little John Deere. So that was part of the deal. So we got that tractor. So I bought an auger that worked off of the three point and the uh, PTO on the back, but I couldn't punch any post holes with it we'd hit that lava rock and we hit hard pan and there's no down pressure on that three point. And so that thing just spun, it just sat there and spun. And so, I mean, there was now, had I known that na- then what I know now I would have gone to a equipment rental place and rented a, a skid steer with a, an auger on the front with down pressure that works out here. That's a beautiful thing, but I didn't know. And so, uh, you know, so, pretty soon I made the decision and I'd been reading business books and listening to business podcasts for a few years because I wanted to start my own business as well. And I knew that there was, there were diminishing returns on doing things yourself in some cases. And I looked at how difficult it was going to be for me to fence this place. And I went, we're outsourcing this. I will make up the money in another place where I have more talent, have the right equipment whatever but we are outsourcing this so that was one of the first things we did is that we outsourced the fencing on the place and we built it like we wanted to build it um and so we've got really nice fence coming in um and then the rest is very very more much more practical fence but coming down our driveway we got a nice wooden fence that was by design uh for the aesthetics and then the rest is just super pragmatic so that was that was the beginning after that i had to hire custom hire people to work the ground and get the pasture planted i rented sprinklers and irrigation equipment to start and then finally was able to progress into getting rid of those leases and buying my own equipment went through a few different iterations of that and the first livestock we bought were chickens of course it's what everybody does um, on a place like this but then after that was goats that was because of my daughter and my wife uh we couldn't have any cattle yet but we had tons of weeds and you could get electric netting and they wanted something so we bought I got a couple goats for free actually off of Craigslist and uh went through multiple disasters with goats um, but uh, anyway it just all progressed from there
0: yeah that yeah. i love to hear people's stories of how they get through or what they do those first few years because it can be really challenging to make that work like you said you guys had that dual income home that you had money to transfer into this but regardless it is still hard to make it work because it's so capital intensive to get started and so hearing just like the steps that you go through I think is so helpful to other people who are getting started. And one of the things that you mentioned was the equipment rental versus leasing versus buying things. And that is like, I feel like the constant turmoil in every farmer's mind of like, okay, how much am I going to use this? How much is it going to cost? Is it worth renting? Which rental prices anymore? Especially if you have to pay to truck it to, to you. Are like half the price of what it would be to buy it and you only get to use it for two days or something but yeah it's crazy
1: yes you got to weigh those things for sure i will say uh one of them one of the best things we did uh is uh, so anybody who's going to start a venture like this with your spouse uh take before pictures document what you're doing because you're going to hit a point one of you at least maybe both of you but one of you at least it's going to hit a point where you're like what are we doing all this work for we're not getting anywhere this or that and if you can pull out those before pictures it can it can be a reset button um you can look and you can see the progress you've made otherwise you're the frog in the pot and sometimes there's just you can't you know you start to understand what that's saying you can't see the forest for the trees means, because you can't see what you've accomplished because you're just spun up in the middle of it. So take some before pictures. We got that idea when we first bought our place, Uh, there was a class offered through the University of Idaho extension called living on the land. And so it was like, I think it was like a, a 12 week course, one night a week. And Autumn and I went to it and we went to it because we were both very familiar with cattle we'd never owned our own land we'd never been responsible for our own irrigation system we had never paid property taxes on a piece of land we'd never filed for an ag exemption we you know we'd had done all this other stuff we never had a well we never had a septic tank we'd never done any of that uh at least as the people who were were responsible for it so we had a lot to learn we knew the cow piece we didn't know the rest and so We had a ton to learn, so we went to that class. The class was great, but the class gave us the idea for the before and after pictures, which we adhered to, and and that's been an important non-income producing step in succeeding out here. Um, The class also gave me the final inspiration I needed to start my first business, and that's changed everything. So you just never know, know, there's, there's that saying that when the student is ready, the teacher will appear, Well, my first business, I had an idea of it might work, but going to that class and hearing the complaints all the other families had about this pest that I was going to exterminate if I started this business, that's what made me go, this really truly is a good idea and it's really going to work. Had I not gone to that class, I probably wouldn't have started that business I wouldn't have got the inspiration that led me to start this podcast. And I don't know what my life would look like right now.
0: That's that's such good advice, regardless of if you're farming or any kind of business. I feel like I needed to hear that to take before pictures or jot down memories of what it's like in the early days versus how far you get. That's That's great advice. So jumping in to the podcast piece, I want to talk just a little bit about that part mm-hmm. of your journey. What was it that helped you recognize that this wasn't just you, that there was lots of people who were interested in living this rural and agriculture lifestyle and were trying to find ways to make it work? What what was it that made you take that leap and say, this is worth talking about?
1: Well, I think it was all my years of pursuit, trying to figure out the internet was huge because... You know, when I first developed this dream, the Internet was unbelievably rudimentary on dial-up connections. And, I mean, you just used it if you absolutely had to. Um, But by the time we bought this place, there was social media. So we bought it in 2011. There was social media already. There was Facebook. Um, And so all of a sudden, we were emerging into this time where you could connect with people. were like-minded but didn't live around you because let's face it i lived in the city in a subdivision there were not a lot of people in my circle who had any interest in buying a piece of land and putting a cow on it they just weren't there all all of our friends i'm trying to think we have maybe one or two friends who are entrepreneurial other than that everybody else was was very normal uh, they worked for a job they wanted quote unquote job security don't get me started on that uh they wanted job security uh they wanted a, a retirement they wanted a pension they wanted a 401k they wanted health benefits all of this and some some combination of fear and complacency uh is gonna keep them in in those positions for until they retire um, for for a small percentage of them, it's gonna keep them there because they love it. And I really envy those people. So proud of them for finding where they're supposed to be. Um, For other people, I wish they would break out and they would go do something that fulfilled them more. But anyway, so I didn't have that that circle and then social media came around. Now social media I'd say is probably 85% bad, but there's 15% of it or so that's really, really positive. And I was able to start connecting and finding forums and groups and people out there on the internet who uh, wanted to get into farming, but they had no idea how they could accomplish it because of the startup costs and the overhead and land prices and equipment and, and all of that. And even if they could start, then the next question was, well, how can I do it full time? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, because the dream isn't just to have the land and work it in the morning before work and the evening after work in all weekend long. That's not the dream. The dream is this is my bubble, and I don't have to leave this bubble. I get to stay right here in this bubble. That's the dream. And so there was all these questions out there. And so social media was huge for me that I figured out that I was not alone. I wasn't crazy. I had a tribe out there somewhere, even if they weren't living in my subdivision, which would have been weird. <laughs> uh, and so so that was a big deal to, to be able to find those people, connect with those people, and then to occasionally get a little bit frustrated because I would see somebody put a question out there like, how in the world do I do this? And yeah. they'd get, as an example, they get 10 responses and nine of those 10 responses were like, don't do it. Mm-hmm. It's not worth it. You can't make money. I mean, it was just negative, negative, negative. These people have a dream. They're trying to get started. And there's all these people who, for one reason or another, hasn't worked out for them. And they're just pouring that negativity onto that person. <laughs> I was like, no way. Once I accomplished it, I was like, well, there was a way. And so now I'm going to tell other people what that way was and, and try and help them. So kind of that.
0: Yeah. It's a powerful journey to go through, realizing that you have a story to share and that there are other people who think like you do. I think we all find that at some point, it just sometimes takes longer than we wish it would.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Sure. Well, um, I want to make sure we get to a couple more things. Um, one thing that I wanted to ask about is you spend a lot of time talking about important topics in agriculture on your podcast and diving into what folks need to know about them and, and trying to do your own research. What is one of them that comes to mind that you feel like is maybe being missed or you wished was being talked about more or has just really been on your mind lately?
1: I've got a micro and a macro. You want both?
0: I'll take both. Yes. <laughs> okay.
1: So on the micro scale, and this is my micro scale, what I see around me is definitely urban sprawl, uh, and it's it, what's interesting about this to me is I'm I'm on the urban rural interface, right where I'm at. I I can't even tell you what's going on around me. Facebook is building a gargantuan server farm at the cost of like eight hundred million dollars, two and a half miles from my farm. As the crow flies um that's on one side we've got subdivisions completely encircling us uh, the lifestyle that we were seeking when we bought this place is completely going to be different than what we envisioned in the short term and it's interesting how it's impacting us and uh interesting how it's impacting people around us um you take a 100 acre farm in in the area where i live that was row crop and it was production ag and the owner of that 100 acres sold it to a developer um, or they sold it off and they subdivided it in our county the in the unincorporated part of our county the smallest parcel you can subdivide into is 10 acres so somebody may have bought it and then split it all up subdivided that 100 acre place into 10 10 acre ranchettes or something like that So that place in the typical rotation that we have here in the Treasure Valley, that place was probably producing when it was a 100 acre production agriculture farm. It was probably producing quite a bit of alfalfa hay when it was in full production, because that's a typical rotation crop that we've got here in the valley. Um, It's a good cash crop and obviously good for recharging the nitrogen and the soil and all that. So it was probably producing a ton of hay. And there was no livestock on that 100 acres. Then it gets subdivided into 10, 10 acre pieces. Now there's probably no hay being produced on that 100 acres. But all those 10 acre people, and I'm one of them, although we we're at 33 acres now, we're really getting big. Uh, they have livestock. And so they need hay. So one of the things I've seen happen with, with that aspect of this is that... There's more demand for less hay. And so that hay price just gets dumb. And uh, and so that's been an interesting thing. Then surrounding all of that, you've got the areas that keep getting annexed by these small communities in our county and in the county to the east of us or west of us. And as they get annexed, those are all going into subdivisions. And it just kills me when they build these subdivisions. I realize they do it for a reason. But when they build these subdivisions, they absolutely dig up. And we don't have that much great topsoil here because of the lava. But what good topsoil we do have, they dig it up down to the bedrock. That's when they start putting in the streets and the infrastructure and the foundations for houses. They just remove all of that good soil. So even if we ever wanted to tear out the subdivisions and farm it again, that's that they purposely removed and got rid of that good topsoil. So the urban sprawl is very, very interesting for me because anybody who wants to farm, they've got to compete with this huge group of buyers for this piece of land. Whereas traditionally, if you wanted to farm, you'd go to a farming area and the people you were competing with to purchase that piece of land were other farmers and they weren't willing to pay more for that land than what it was going to be able to produce in their enterprise budget. But now you've got all these other competing forces where I'm at. You got the folks who want horses. They will pay anything. okay. and I'm not blaming them, but that's a that's a market force that you normally didn't have to deal with. Um, You've got people who just want some elbow room. Mm -hmm. You've got land investors. You've got uh, developers. You've got all this and that. So if you're going to buy land in an area like I'm in, you can't factor the land cost into your enterprise budget. Because it's it, you would never buy it, so you have to be half a land speculator and half a farmer, and you got to pull the land cost out of your enterprise budget. And so the urban sprawl is a tough one for me because I the, these people that that farm and have worked this ground and have they've been you know they've been land rich but cash poor their whole lives. When they're ready to hang it up and I don't know wear those knee high socks and walk around Florida or whatever you're gonna do, I don't know they need to pull that value out of that land. And so you don't, you don't want to interfere with their private property rights. You don't want to tell them what to do with their land or with their assets. At the same time, it breaks your heart to see the community changing over in this, in this manner. And uh, I mean, so urban sprawl is a big one for me. I've gone on rants about it on my show. I've discovered people out there on YouTube that have talked about they called a pyramid scheme when it comes to urban sprawl and why cities continue to do this. uh, You've got people who are writing articles like in in, uh, Arizona calling farmers selfish because they're just using the water rights they've had for a century. Uh, In the meantime, they just continue to develop subdivision after subdivision when they know they don't have the water for it. I mean, for me, that is a big deal. But now here we are in the 21st century And even in areas that are isolated from urban sprawl, you've got more competitive interests in agricultural land now because really ultra wealthy people are looking at ag ground as a great investment, a great tax shelter, a great hedge. And so now they're buying it up. And so now even the farmer who's found a way to live out there, um, they're getting priced out or... It's the margins are becoming slimmer and slimmer and slimmer. And so that's a big one for me. I don't know how to solve it. Uh, it's uh, I never ever play the lottery or like the lotto. But in this, I, I fall to the same fallacy as everybody else. But if it gets up to like 400 billion, I'll go buy a ticket because now it's big enough for me to play. But the whole point is if I win 400 billion, I'm buying everything I can see. I'm putting it all in uh, conservation easements. With stipulations for farming. That's my dream right there. That's the only reason I would ever play uh, the lottery or the lotto or something like that is to be able to, you know, to be the fly in the ointment.
0: I wish more people had that dream. <laughs> 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 oh, man. I, I, you just painted a beautiful, well, not a beautiful picture, a really horrible picture, but you sell it well <laughs> on that topic. I've, thought a lot about that from the land price aspect Mm -hmm. but when you talk about it i mean there's so many factors and we're going to continue to see the impacts of that for a long time like that's industry changing impact that that can have so i think we're going to have to have to do a whole episode on urban sprawl now and dive all the way in
1: the tentacles the tentacles of what's going on spread so far It spreads into the mental health crisis that we're seeing in agriculture. And I I can explain that. And I've got firsthand evidence of that um, from doing my show. Um, It's the whole reason I advocate for using small business because there's a catch-22. Somebody like me that stays in the the urban-rural interface, I stay here. We stay here because my wife wants to stay here. She's got her career and she's got her family here. So she is bound and determined to stay here. So I feel like that's reasonable. And so I've got to work around that with my dreams. Um, But you might, you might want to stay close to the urban center because you can make good money. My wife's a school teacher. She's probably making double or triple working in the Boise school district as she would make in a very, very small school district in rural Idaho or rural wherever, you name it. And so you stay close because you can make the good money, and there's an abundance of these jobs. But then the land price is so high that it to start a legitimate farming enterprise that can eventually be a full time income. That's a, that you're going to have to get really specialized. A lot of direct marketing production ag is out. You can't. You there's no way on a small scale you can make any money on those margins. So you, you're going to have to do agritourism. You're going to have to do. Well, something some niche right which i'm cool with i think being innovative is fun but that's not what everybody wants and i say it on my show all the time if i could be a large cow calf production ag guy and just sell my calves at commodity rates every spring or every fall i would absolutely i would that's my dream that's what i always wanted to do i'm not big enough and i i just don't have i don't have the family situation nor do i have the risk tolerance to go that to go that route that that's always been the dream um so you got this Catch-22, people are staying close to these urban centers for the money and for the jobs, um, but they can't get enough land to be full-time farmers. If they go out far enough where they can get enough land to be full-time farmers, there's not the jobs or the jobs that are available don't pay enough for the off-farm income that they need. So I try to fill that gap talking about small business in ag, and hopefully that's the answer. That's my my answer anyway.
0: It's a good answer. Really good one. Um yeah, the the impacts and on the mental health, I think, are huge too. The the fact that when the price gets to a certain point, like you mentioned with the lottery, when the price Mm -hmm. gets high enough, it's worth it. The same is true, I think, in family transitions, especially for Mm -hmm. when the farm is divided amongst children and non-farm children are seeing those dollar signs. It's like, well. Is it really worth keeping it in the family for what, for why, when this is the price tag? That's oh. pretty crazy to watch unfold. But
1: you uh, Are you a fan of Corb Lund? Yes. Do you know a song, The S-Lazy H? I do. Oh, my gosh. If you're ever in a melancholy mood and you want to make it worse. <laughs> listen <Don't> to that. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, I'll tell you another tentacle of it um, with the mental health part. I've had, there's two episodes of my show I did that I will never forget and I refer to all the time. One was a gentleman from Virginia, one was a gentleman from, I wanna say Nebraska. One had a mobile grain roasting business, one had a mobile seed cleaning business. And they found the niche because of what's going on with centralization. So you got all these companies that used to be in these small towns and provide services to farmers grain roasting and seed cleaning there's two of them right but now they've centralized because the really big production ag farms they've got what they need they have fleets of trucks they've got the ability to haul these commodities to a centralized location and and to get seeds clean grain roast or whatever it may be but these small to medium-sized production ag farmers they've seen everybody that was providing them service leave and they feel abandoned and like Both of these guys who don't know each other, who I interviewed at separate times, told me the same exact thing, is that they'll show up on farms to provide the service. And some farmers will be almost in tears because they're like, somebody still cares enough to work with me and provide me a service. And so there's all these unintended consequences. Nobody is purposely abandoning small to mid-sized farmers for any malicious purpose. They're doing it for business reasons. But the feel on the other end of that rope is nobody cares anymore. We're not valued. And so, I mean, there's, there's all sorts of stuff under the surface here and I'm no expert on it by, you know, I'm not like uh, Jason Meadows or anybody who talks specifically about mental health and ag, uh, uh, Elaine freeze or, or people like that. I'm, uh, I'm no expert in it. I just, I hear these stories doing this show and I'm like, yeah, that's real.
0: It absolutely is. and, yeah put it tying it all back to urban sprawl is a very smart take on the matter i don't know that everybody makes quite all of those connections was that but was that the micro or the macro
1: that's the micro if you can that's believe the it.
0: micro okay i'm ready for the macro let's talk that one
1: okay here's something that is interesting to me it has to and obviously i'm very pro beef industry i eat real meat um the beyond meat, the fake meats, the lab grown meats, by and large, we're looking at large agribusiness companies that are involved in this. So there's a fight coming because they can't continue to bash pork, beef, lamb, chicken in favor of the fake meat and then sell seed to forage producers. And you know what I mean? You can't, you can't sit there and market against your customers and say, you should buy this stuff we grow in a lab because, um, all these pie in the sky reasons. And then on the other hand, turn around with the same label on your bag of seed and be like, this is going to really produce great forage for you to raise your cattle. You can't you can't do that. I don't hear many people talk about it, but it's, I'm sure it's probably being talked about maybe in behind closed doors. I don't know, but I look at companies, some historic ag companies, some great ag companies, and they're playing both ends against the middle. And I'm like, there's a, there's gotta be a breaking point out there. Someone's not going to put up with this. And when I say that, I mean, in a business sense, I don't mean in some sort of, you know, revolutionary storm in the castle sense, but Yeah. So that I can't talk with as much expertise, but on a macro level, I look at agribusiness and production ag and I go, how's how do people put up with this? This this can't last. But that's just a thought.
0: I mean, you said it and I don't know that as many people are making the connection there. I think a lot of folks that are talking about the lab grown meat are talking about it on principle, not on where the funding is coming from. And that's definitely something we need to be paying attention to.
1: Well, and not just funding, but some of these some of these companies, uh, they're the ones making it and selling it and and hoping it's this new revenue source. And look, I've said this the entire time I've had the show. Market your stuff on its principles, on why it's so good. Like, for example, if you're an organic producer or you're a sustainable farmer or regenerative or something like that, look, man, talk up. the benefits the omega-3s and the saturated fat and blah talk it all up praise your products but stop yourself from going and this guy over here with the feedlot you know and bashing it don't do that and with this lab grown stuff you're you're creating a product that's a competitor for your customers so that's a problem but that's been done since the dawn of time you know, people who wholesale, then they get into retail and it blah, 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 blah. But don't use the negative and bash your customers and what they're producing in order to sell your new product. That's all I'm saying. And I think that goes for anybody in ag. I mean, ag's a wide spectrum from a, some somebody who's growing, you know, like uh, organic tomatoes in their backyard and selling them to A.J. Hines, who has thousands of acres of of tomatoes under contract in the Central Valley of California or in Michigan, you know, don't bash this farmer over here for the way he's growing tomatoes just to sell yours. They should be good enough to stand on their own.
0: Yeah. Yeah. If we do that, we do exactly what we always say. We hate about big food companies doing fear-based marketing. Yeah. If you don't want to do that, then don't do it yourself.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Don't do it yourself. Yeah, Yeah. There's enough of a market out there.
0: Absolutely. Okay. Well, we are running on time. So I want to see if you will share that Christmas story from the beer garden with us before we wrap up.
1: (laughs) All right. So Valley Hill, California, back then, such a wonderful place to grow up. Now, look, there were no shining examples of material wealth out there or anything like that. We were just country folk living blue collar lifestyles, but really happy people, uh, by and large, happy people. Um, There was one guy in town. I'm sure there was more than one, but there was one in particular in town who had a drinking problem. And so he would get a DUI or something like that. Man, look how I normalize this stuff. This is just (laughs) the way I grew up. He would get a DUI DUI once a year. So I don't know how often, but Uh, All I knew as a kid is that um, he would walk around town constantly with a big, like, uh, 24-ounce Budweiser. So I remember what everybody drank, big 24-ounce can of Budweiser. And he would get a big old belly and a big old beard. And then he would get arrested. There'd be a warrant for his arrest for some misdemeanor or something like that that he never, ever you know, he wouldn't bail out on and he would go spend three months in the county jail or a month in the county jail or something. He'd show back up in town and be all sober and bright eyed and thin. And then the cycle would repeat itself. Well, this is how my town rolled. So what I loved and I still love to this day in my memories about Valley Home was people had televisions, but we didn't have cable. You had an antenna. All the television that we had in Valley Home came from Sacramento. And so you had three, maybe four stations, five if you wanted to count PBS, but who wanted to count PBS? (laughs) And so we had the three big networks and then we had like Fox and uh, PBS. And so there was TV, but nobody spent all their time in front of TV. There was no smartphones, there was no computer, there was music and television and and social, that was it. And so every night in Valley Home, that I can remember in my life, at some house in that little town, two or three families got together for a. They called them highballs for a highball or two. So obviously they were not teetotalers in Valley home. Um, and so there was always something social going on on a night after night basis. And we had people with our quirks, just like the gentleman who would go to the county jail every you know once a year or something and dry out. Uh, we had our quirks, but there came a christmas when i was probably 8 still uh, still fully on board with with santa uh still you know fully engaged so maybe i was 6 or i'm going to try and make it look better maybe i was 6 five or 6 still on board with santa and we had a lot of kids in town at that time a lot of parents at the similar ages so a lot of kids of the same age group and By the way, I got another Christmas story. I could just do it. It's that time of year.
0: When are you airing this? Uh, It'll be that very first week of January. So it'll be after Christmas. Okay. All right. I'll just do it. It's okay. (laughs) But anyway, um,
1: so it came that time of year and the parents getting together in each other's living rooms each evening, having highballs, decided that our quirky gentleman, uh, he'd been out of jail for a while. That belly was really big. The beard was really long. Wouldn't our local Otis, uh, if you ever watch the Andy Griffiths show, wouldn't our local Otis be a great Santa for the kids in town? So they got him a Santa suit. They uh, They made an arrangement. And on Christmas Eve, while everyone's having their Christmas Eve parties around town, he walked from house to house. Showed up as Santa. The parents slipped him a gift and he delivered a gift to each kid, right? Great idea in principle. But this was Valley Home. Everybody had highballs. Everybody was having a Christmas Eve celebration. So he got, so Santa got served drinks at every single house he stopped at. So he got to my house. I know it wasn't last because the incident I'm going to tell you about happened while he was on the way to my neighbor's house. So I was I was either second to last or close to last. So he came into my house. I got my gift. Santa got a couple highballs at my house as well with the the party we had going on. And then he was going across. There was an alleyway between my house and my neighbor's house. Now they had a little three foot high fence or two and a half foot high fence. Separating the border of the alley from their property, but there was no gate on it There was just an opening down at one end So you didn't have to go over that fence. You didn't even have to open a gate You just had to walk down the fence a little bit go through the opening and go around to their front door But santa after as many highballs Had decided it would be again. No wasted effort, right? He had decided it'd be more efficient for him to just step over that two and a half foot fence uh to get over there so he leaves Everybody in my house goes back to the party, except for young Matt Breckwald, who's pinned against the window, watching Santa stagger off. I'm looking for the reindeer, by the way, and I'm watching him leave. And he tries to step over that fence, and he's had way too many highballs. He can't get over the fence. He falls down in the alley. He's on his back like a turtle that's been turned over on his shell arms and feet are flailing in the air he cannot get up and i am losing my mind losing my mind because santa has fallen and can't get up and he's squirming around in the alley and the adults uh they are all just dying laughing uh running out there getting santa up brushing him off and Give him a little pat on the butt, and sending him on to the next neighbor's house, my my neighbor Kenny and Karen. They were getting a visit from Santa uh within the next two minutes after the uh the adults from my party went and got him off the ground. Gosh. And and sent him on his way. So yeah, I'll never forget that one. But that, <laughs> epit- that epitomizes my childhood growing up in the Valley Home.
0: Oh my gosh, that is too good. What a good what a good Christmas memory.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'll oh, never forget.
0: Oh my gosh. Oh man. That's so special. Well, Matt, thank you so much for sharing that t- today. Um, I hope everyone else gets as much of a laugh out of that as I did. Um, w- I want to make sure people know where they can learn more from you and yep. find out about you. Um, where can they find you? And if they have not listened before, maybe what's a good episode they can start out with on your podcast?
1: Oh, they should listen to yours. Oh, well, thank you. That's great guess. We had a great... <laughs> By the way, we had uh, an absolutely fantastic conversation about small business and entrepreneurship. And I I thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you because we're kindred spirits uh, in in this entrepreneurial journey and in following your path and and being true to what it is that 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 inner voice or whatever you want to call it is guiding you to do. And so I truly I, I very rarely get to have a conversation with somebody who is so like-minded. And so it makes for a great conversation. So honestly, since I advocate for small business as a way to fill that gap, I would think starting with your episode would be a great place to start. Uh, yeah, that'd be terrific. Yeah, that'd, that'd be really good. Uh, it's Off Farm Income. It's on Spotify. It's on iHeart. It's on Apple, iTunes, all that type of stuff. Or you can go to the website. Just Google Off Farm Income podcast. It'll pop up.
0: Absolutely. Well, make sure you check it out, everyone, because it is a joy to listen to. You learn something new in every episode and you do them every day. So that's, I mean, a lot of content you can binge real quick. (laughs) Um, Well, thank you so much again, Matt, for being here today. I enjoyed our conversation and I'll look forward to talking to you again soon.
1: My pleasure. I'm flattered. Thank you so much.
0: If you've enjoyed spending time with us today, please take a moment to review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or join the conversation on social media. Do you have a topic you would like to discuss or know someone with a story to share? Apply to be a guest on the podcast at farmingonpurpose.com. You can follow the host of Farming On Purpose, Lexi, on your favorite social media platforms for more content by searching for Farming On Purpose. And remember, if you look around your table and aren't inspired by the people there, it's time to find a new seat.